Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome to the Postcards from a Dying World November Book Review Digest. So this is all the books I read for the uh, month of November 2020. And first was The Living Dead by Daniel Krauss and George A. Romero. Some tasks you just can't win, no matter what you do. Being Peyton Manning's backup quarterback when he was with the Colts was like being the guy at the club who has to turn on the lights when Slayer's third encore is just about to start and tell everyone to go home. There's no right way to do this. So the person who got that job was Romero superfan Daniel Krause. Now, I did an interview with Daniel, and I think you should go listen to that, and you're going to get a lot more out of what that book's about in that interview. But anyways, my review. The Living Dead weaves the narrative around the dead timeline from all the movies. In this book, we see what might be the first zombie, and it happens right here in San Diego. This is before the events of Diary of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead. I think we'll have to petition for a plaque or something on the wall at the medical examiner's office here in San Diego, because that's where it all started. This storyline features Luis and Charlie, who work in that particular morgue. These two characters are the ones who broke my heart the most, as the chaos and many of the best moments happen to and around them in this story. The storyline shows uh, the the totally massive scope that Romero was never able to do in his films, including the story of the Olympia USS Olympia aircraft carrier, which has, which is about the size of a city and deals with an outbreak. This is just something that he couldn't have done in a film. And like many of the storylines in the movies, the characters provide some of the most horrifying moments, uh, including on the Olympia, there's a Miss Carmody like character um, and I'm referencing The Mist by Stephen King, who has kind of a religious reaction, and that's a theme that's kind of important to Romero. The themes are all there. The dangers of technology, consumerism, mistrust, and dehumanization. The dead kind of stand in for the working class and oppressed, as they always do in Romero work. While some of this might seem kind of on the nose, Krauss kind of weaves it all in with subtle moments throughout. And the last act of Krauss slash Romero's attempt to envision a utopia is kind of what the book's about. Uh, There's a quote, people, zombies, we're all dying, he said gently. Here's what we have to accept. We're smart zombies as much as they are dumb humans. And uh, so that's from the book around page, I think, 417. But that's kind of like the point. Uh, We are no different. Romero tried to remind us over and over that we are them, that the line is paper thin between the hungry consumers mindlessly ending the world slowly and, well, the zombies. George's words that form this thesis and end the book And uh, I think Daniel Cross did an excellent job of finishing a work that Romero died writing. Next up was the Exploring Dark Short Fiction Primer Number 5, a primer to Han Song, Chinese writer. There are very few, few things that are as consistently awesome 
all the time. Like, there's very few bands without a bad record or director without a stinker. But so far, Eric Inyard and his imprint, Dark Moon, have a perfect 5 for 5 record with this series of collections, exploring dark fiction. That said, this is my favorite so far for a couple of reasons. In previous um, editions, I had read one or more things by the authors and was familiar with their work by their reputation. I've read quite a bit of Chinese science fiction and genre, and that's the thing. In China, those lines are totally blurred, uh, kind of like the Twilight Zone. That said, this is my first experience with Han Song, who did not appear in Invisible Planets, the first of Ken Liu's anthology of Chinese translations, and that's the one I have read. Uh, he appeared in Broken Stars, the second of that series, but that's still on my to-read list. This series comes with pretty illustrations and commentary in each story with Professor Michael Arnzen. And by the way, I interviewed Eric and Michael for the podcast. You probably already know this if you're a listener, but that episode is really good too. All these stories come with excellent non-fictional commentaries and author interviews, and Han Song's own essay, Sending Chinese Science Fiction Overseas, is a highlight. I wrote down lots of titles of novels that, unfortunately, most of which are not translated yet, that I can't wait to read of Chinese science fiction. But what makes Han Song's style so great is the same surreal feeling and zero fucks given for convention or expectation. These stories don't have to access reality as we know it, and in that way, Han Song is, to me, the Brian Evanson of Chinese speculative fiction. Speaking of Chinese science fiction, my next read, back-to-back Chinese science fiction, was Vagabonds by Han Jingfang, who was translated by Ken Liu. Keeping on track with this Chinese theme, I was excited to read this doorstop 600-pager, but the common DNA that Vagabonds shares with Ursula Gwynn's The Dispossessed is one of the things that's gotten a lot of people's attention. Both no- novels are sociological and anthropological in feel. These novels could be studied for years to come because they're written by women reflecting on systems they are living in. In the case of Vagabonds, it's impossible to ignore the fact that the author is Chinese, even though it doesn't directly address China as a country. It's about Mars and Earth, so it's a little bit of literary surrealism. Okay, so the details that Zhenfeng, uh you chooses to describe um, and keep this novel going is kind of keeps it from being a hard sci-fi experience. It's a little bit more surreal. So in that way, in a Mars sense, it's more like PKD's Martian Time Slip than Ken Stanley Robinson's hard sci-fi Mars trilogy. There's no mention of what nations formed the Mars colonies. That is kind of left to the reader's imagination, but the suggestion is heavily implied with the passages. But at the same time, the knee-jerk reaction to see Mars as socialist China and Earth as America is one that I don't think is correct. Sure, Earth in the 24th century is an overpopulated capitalist capitalist mess suffering under the weight of ecological destruction. There's something like democracy there, uh, but it's deeply flawed. On paper, China claims to be a democratic republic at this time in our world, 
while at the same time suffering at the hands of capitalism by feeding its massive population, by racing to the bottom, by being the home for expansive, expansive and cheap labor everywhere. But honestly, Mars in this novel can't really can be compared to either. It's basically one city, and its population is so small it's impossible to compare it to either the U.S. or China. The fact is, the author is being critical of elements of both countries with this analogy in the book. It would be fairly typical for Western readers to assume that Chinese science fiction writers are automatically condemning the Chinese system, and they must be using metaphor of genre to protest their conditions. That assumes that these novels view our Western way of life as a functioning democracy, something worth striving for. The egotism behind this notion can't be understated, and think about how Trumpism and America looks from the outside. Not great. Nonetheless, this book was written a decade ago by a young Chinese author who is an idealist. So Vagabonds is not anti-Chinese. In fact, it seems to be very much a novel about what it means to be a young person raised on those ideals, not necessarily by the execution of those ideals. The novel is not for everyone. It's long and slow, but I found it incredible for a couple reasons. The unique point of view that the author brings to the table is clear on every page. I had expectations, and the novel dashed most of them. The challenge of this book is the length and pace. If you need constant weirdness or action from your science fiction, this might not be for you. Social science is very much the science that makes this science fiction. Was it perfect? It's a little long, and some of the message didn't feel great to me. But I'm super happy to hear this voice, so I'm leaning towards this being a great novel that's just not for everyone. Next up is Extraterrestrial by Avi Loeb. He is my favorite astronomer, and this is his first nonfiction book that I'm aware of anyways. Uh, Dr. Loeb actually quoted my review for over 400 astronomy students at Oxford, and I'm never not going to gloat about that. I mean, that's pretty cool. Anyways, but bravery comes to mind when I think of his sense of wonder. He is not afraid to speculate or think wildly outside the box. He is still a scientist. Through a slew of papers over the years, he's backed up these ideas. Now, he stepped out into the media spotlight a few years ago with when uh, Oumuamua, the interstellar object, was discovered racing through our solar system. So Loeb, Loeb pointed out that this was most likely a piece of technology. So you can see that is a huge deal because that would be proof that intelligent extraterrestrial life was indeed out there. They may have lived and died millions of years ago, and this object may have traveled for a very long time after that civilization was gone and or it could be a scout it's hard to say anyways the part that he quoted in his powerpoint at oxford was this next part i know people were hoping that a flying saucer would land on the lawn of the white house but the truth is much more likely to be something less splashy like this look i'm not an astronomer so i don't have to choose my words as carefully when I look at what Oumuamua did, it's pretty fucking rad. This object came on a path from above that turned at an incredible speed and changed directions through the orbit of Mars, out past Saturn, 
in a totally different direction. So you know what? I think Avi Loeb is right. This is the answer to one of the biggest questions in history. So you should pre-order the book Extraterrestrial by Avi Loeb and keep your ears peeled to this podcast because I've already interviewed Avi, but it doesn't come out in the feed until closer to when the book is released in January. So you're going to have to wait for that. So next up, I read quite a different book, and that's Stay Ugly by Daniel Velasti who uh, you might remember as being on our Survivor Song discussion panel episode. So Daniel wrote um, a hard-boiled mystery novel that delivers on the title because it's a grim, ugly tale that is entertaining, and for for those with a dark sense of humor, it's pretty funny. In 180 or so pages, Stay Ugly is a tightly packed mystery that unfolds after midnight in one of Chicago's nastier hoods, And it reminds uh, me of what every football coach quotes Richard Pryor as having said, that nothing good happens after midnight. So this is a fun book for crime readers who like stories vivid, visceral, and ugly enough. Daniel Velasti really did it. So this is my jam. This book would make a great film. So if there's anyone out there who are crime readers who think the classics are just too clean, I present Stay Ugly. Anyways, the last book I read for this month is Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Sawadi. Sawadi. Eh, I don't know. You know me in pronunciations. But anyways, he wrote a surreal fantasy to highlight the very nightmare reality of the U.S. military occupation of Baghdad. So this story has a variety of characters from around the city. I know it's trite to say that the city is a character, but in this case, the occupation, not the city of Baghdad, is a character. So the person who really drives the early moments of this story is Hadi, who is a junk dealer who's kind of known for his wild stories. What he does in his form of personal protest is he collects the body parts of the victims of violence and stitches them together. So we get each person's story that gets kind of put into the collection and they're brought back to life by magic. This monster is called What's-His-Name, and despite being reanimated bits and pieces of war victims, the horror around them kind of makes less of this aspect of the story. The fantasy elements were interesting, but the solidly anti-war occupation moments are what makes this book interesting. What's-His-Name is a collection of body parts, and it certainly invokes old Frankie, But there's not much connection to Mary Shelley's classic, but that's not really the point. The novel highlights the many elements of the occupation that gets overlooked in this country, what are the divisions and the cultures throughout the region and the different religions that make up the region. So the novel is doing something very important. Internationally, the need for the spotlight on the history and the lasting impact of W's invasion is more than just the resurgence, the uh, growth of ISIS. Okay, there are aspects of this novel I'm sure people not from the inside of the bubble would not get, and I know there's a lot of religious themes that are beyond me, but I think um, Frankenstein and Baghdad is a very important book, and you can look forward to an article I'm writing on speculative fiction and the war on terror, but more details on that in the future. Anyways, that's what I read this month. I've got some fun things in store for next month, including... Osama by Lavi Tidar 
and The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson and Gene O'Neill's new book. So see you next month.